Welcome to Culture Conversations, a podcast that helps disciples make disciples in today's world. I'm Chris Moran, host of Culture Conversations. Today, you'll be hearing from the pastoral elders of Eternal City Church as they seek to give gospel clarity over a recent controversy, whether Jesus is King or substitutionary atonement is the center of the gospel. I trust you'll be encouraged. All right, here we are before the Reverend Wright Rue Pedro, the high and mighty Bishop of Wilkinsburg, Eddie Jones, and the sociologist par excellence, Justin Coatsum, and I am the voice of one crying out on the podcast, prepare the way of the Lord, make it that straight. <laughs> and tonight we're going to be talking about gospel clarity. Uh, due to some recent uproar over the T4G20 conference, uh, our friend Greg Gilbert, who neither of us know, but we all appreciate his book and Eternal City gives out his book on the gospel, and we use uh, Crossway's book um, tract on the gospel in our outreach. So we appreciate that. Um, if you will, version of the gospel, that gospel clarity. So we wanted to talk about what is happening uh, with the different versions of the gospel that are out there and which one more lines up with the Bible. And so that's what this podcast is going to be about. So for maybe a minute, Pete Rudy, do you mind opening us up on the, the controversy, what happened at the conference and, and the uproar? on Christianity Today and other websites. Sure. I told the guys I wasn't going to be talking, but I guess <laughs> I'm forced to. Um, and, and I have been working on tile all day, so if I fall asleep halfway through this, uh, just be aware. Let me sleep. Um, so, yeah, this is, this is basically what's been going on the last few weeks, uh, and this has been a lot of article writing and Twitter exchanges and, and other things. So... Greg Gilbert spoke at Together for the Gospel 2020, and in in his um, his message, his talk there, he spoke specifically about um, and responded specifically to Scott McKnight and Matthew Bates and their view of what is kingship gospel. That essentially the idea is Jesus is king is the gospel, and in response to that, McKnight and Bates both wrote articles in Christianity Today responding to Greg Gilbert. Greg Gilbert wrote a response in Nine Marks, and they went back and forth writing corresponding articles responding to each other. Um, And I believe they're up to, what, four or five responses now um, between all of them. But basically, it comes down to the... The discussion of what it what is the gospel, what is central to the gospel. McKnight and Bates arguing that Jesus is king is all that the gospel is. Hard stop. Jesus is king. The king has come. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Whereas Gilbert would argue um, that the the central focus of the gospel is substitutionary atonement. And that if if you don't understand the king came for a purpose, you are missing the central component of the gospel. So that's kind of everything in a nutshell. Yeah, that's a very good summary of what we're looking at. Our sociologist, unfortunately, has to leave very soon. So we're going to let him get a few words in before he exits the room here. We appreciate you being here, brother. 
and uh, we also want you to honor your commitments. So as you've read through the material, um, you're, a, you're a gospel man. Um, what are your thoughts on how our church, specifically our people, can navigate through clarity on the gospel, sharing the gospel, um, thinking through what is and isn't the gospel? Yeah, I was telling Pete before we started recording that probably last summer, maybe, um, I follow Scott McKnight's work loosely, but keep up with him every now and then and hear stuff from him. And he did a he did a podcast on this topic that I heard kind of in isolation, like I said a, a, about last summer. And he talked about what the gospel, what he considers the gospel, what's the plan of salvation, what's the plan or path of discipleship, and kind of defined all of those in three different buckets. And when I heard it at the time, I was like, well, you know, I'd say that's that's broadly helpful. I don't know that I would rubber stamp it as as you know. Uh, 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 without error, but I thought it was a broadly helpful discussion and something that I just kind of filed in my mind and, and left for another time. And then when I saw these articles going back and forth, I was like, huh, there is some very interesting uh, threads being pulled from both sides of the equation, uh, from Greg Gilbert and from Scott McKnight. And I think the first angle that maybe some of the tension is coming from this conversation is, correct me if I'm wrong, anybody, but I think... Uh, Scott McKnight nor Matthew Bates would consider themselves, uh, uh, specifically, I would say, would consider themselves Calvinist in their understanding of salvation. Yeah. yeah I would agree. So if that's so the they case, would, they, would, they not. would not. They would not. They would okay. not. Right. And I think one of the things that's interesting is if you look at the limited atonement and irresistible grace, the L and the I in Tulip, which uh, Greg Gilbert would probably subscribe to and call himself in some, in some way, shape, or form, or form a Calvinist, um, that may be what's leading to some of the back and forth of the understanding here. Because someone like Greg Gilbert would say, look, anyone who truly understands and grasps the gospel and is called by God, they're in that limited people that Jesus atoned for, and that message is irresistible to them. So then, that means that when they hear that, they're going to want to be individually atoned and have their sins paid for. They're going to want to like actually enter into what Scott McKnight would call the plan of salvation. So I think because a Scott McKnight and a Matthew Bates wouldn't subscribe to a limited atonement or irresistible grace view of salvation, their view of the gospel may be a little more catered towards the gospel is Jesus's kingship, that he's Lord, that he's the, the ruler that's going to rule over creation like Adam and Eve failed to, like everyone else in the, in the historic old covenant failed to. And so I think maybe that's what's leading to some of the pushback on from both sides is that they understand salvation differently. Therefore, when you ask what the gospel is, they're going to come to very different conclusions because one of them sees salvation as something that God for, you know, foreknew, predestined, ordains people to enter into. And others of them uh, probably don't see it that way. And I don't want to misrepresent them, so I don't want to see how they would explain it. But I think perhaps that's maybe what's leading to some of the back and forth here. Because as I've read through the articles, I'm thinking, yes, there's some things I would affirm and I would agree with there. There's some things I would affirm and agree with on the other side as well. And what uh, seems to be perhaps maybe most helpful is uh, Greg Gilbert and one of the responses sort of admitting that people who, and I would say the majority of the people in our church and probably the majority of the people who may listen to this podcast may have heard more from a Greg Gilbert and heard more from Reformed or Calvinistic understanding of, uh, of, of salvation would benefit from explain the gospel in terms of all of the old covenant backstory that the significance of Scott McKnight and Matthew Bates are pointing out, which is Jesus is king, 
is really is a really impactful message if you look at the entire arc of the story of the Bible. And I think that's a good correction. And I think Greg Gilbert has, has admitted that in his responses, like, yeah, people who are reformed in their understanding of salvation could do a better job of framing the entire narrative of Scripture around what Jesus is and why it's significant to say that he is king. And even if we accept that correction, that doesn't necessarily mean that we, uh, or that he as a reformed person, doesn't then also consider it necessary to, to say, what does that kingship then mean? And what does it mean for me if I'm sharing it with someone? What does it mean for me if I'm sharing it with a neighbor or a friend? So uh, I guess those would be my initial thoughts is the, the Calvinistic understanding of salvation uh, kind of maybe is mudding the waters a bit about how they might understand or unpack this. And I think the, the correction that Greg Gilbert is willing to admit is, is a good one, which is Jesus is King is a significant message. Is it the gospel, uh, capital T, capital G, quotes on both sides? I think that's probably where the discussion is going to continue. Wow, good, good timing, Jeez. man. <laughs> so what we're going to do now, as, as Justin keeps his commitment, is we're going to Disagree unpack. with everything <laughs> Justin <laughs> Sorry, brother. You don't get to defend yourself. Let the slander begin. The slander begin. <laughs> we're going to unpack all that Justin just said. Oh, it's a lot. Justin, you packed a lot. Yeah, yeah. Appreciate that. Brother, we love you. We'll see you. Thanks, brother. All right, brother. We're going to unpack what Justin just said there. So for those who are unfamiliar with uh, the limited atonement and the irresistible grace, Justin is referring to the Calvinistic tulip view of uh, salvation or soteriology. Uh, Tulip being total depravity for the T, U, unconditional election, L, limited atonement, I, irresistible grace, P, perseverance of the saints. Um, and, and there may be something to that. Um, I believe that when the recovery of the gospel happened with Martin Luther in 1517, you know, he nailed his 95 theses to the Wittenberg church door there. He, he was saying that indulgences and being made right with God cannot be something that we achieve or that we do but it must be something that God does to us. And you remember his, um, he, he has this, I can't remember what book it's in, but he talks about him, used, he used to despise the gospel. Um, he thought it was a, a threatening message where God's righteousness was over the sinner and it condemned him. He didn't see it as something that God gives the righteousness of God gifted in the gospel. And so when he heard Luther, I'm speaking of, when he heard the word gospel, he thought that it was uh, terrible news, not good news, because in it he thought the righteousness of God hung over him in a condemnation way, not realizing that it was something gifted to him in justification. And so from that declaration of Luther, um, it, it kind of exploded there and the bits and pieces began to spread out. And now we would say, along I think with most Reformed gospel theologians, that justification and substitutionary atonement are the centerpiece of the gospel. Uh, would you guys agree with that? Are we, are we in agreement that the, the, the simple message that Jesus is king is not the center of the gospel, but rather it's that Jesus as king came to accomplish something and fulfill something and his kingliness is an aspect of the gospel, but not the center. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. 
Yeah, I would. I would absolutely agree with that. I think you you look at Old Testament typology of of Christ from the very beginning of Adam and Eve sin, and God has to uh, kill an animal to clothe them, to the Passover, to the sacrificial system, to Isaiah and the suffering servant passages in Isaiah fifty three fifty three in particular. Um, you're it's it's not sufficient to say Jesus is king, so the king has come. That, that is a great message, but that's not sufficient. He, he has come for a purpose. He has come for a reason, and that reason is to substitute himself in our place, and that's, that's the central point of the gospel. Um, I think Paul sums it up in 1 Corinthians 15 when he says, this is the gospel of what is first importance, mm-hmm. that Christ died for our sins. And he was buried and he rose again the third day. Um, Witness to you by five hundred yeah. people all the time. So, so I do think, and I would agree with Justin, that the, the work that McKnight and Bates are doing is helpful to understand the gospel in the narrative of Jesus' life. I, I would agree with that. I think far too often within Reformed theology we have gone down a path of turning salvation into a very formulaic mm-hmm. thing where it's just a transaction that occurs. Mm-hmm. And there's an element of transaction that takes place right. with our sin being imputed to Christ and Christ's righteousness imputed to us. Historically, the great exchange. Exactly. Yeah. And that, that, is a, that is a true thing, but right. we, we have at times divorced it from the actual narrative of Jesus' life. And who he is, but I don't think you can take him coming and then remove from that the the necessity of substitution. Because if he doesn't substitute for us, then what what was his death serving? Um, yeah. And that gets into a number of other questions. But you, I think you ultimately miss you miss the center point of the gospel in that. Um, Jesus substituted himself for us so that we could then find our joy and our satisfaction in him and him alone as the most beautiful, satisfying being ever. Um, You miss that if you just say Jesus is king and that's it. Because it's not not good news for us if he's not our king. He didn't die for us. It's not good news. It's not gospel. I think um, uh, Greg mentioned that too in his response. He said, if Jesus is king, it's not good news to me because I'm unrighteous. Yeah. You know, so there has to be. And even, and even in Zechariah where you see the um, symbolism where the, the kingship, the king and the priest um, are united. Their, 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 their purposes are united in one. And that's what Jesus is. He's king and priest. You know, so the king came, like you said, not just to be king, but he came for a purpose to do something. Mm-hmm. Uh, the king came to make us righteous, and you can't um, leave that element out. And I don't, I don't think that uh, this Scott or Matthew was saying that they're leaving it out. Yeah. Um, but they're saying it's just not a part of the gospel. I think that's what they would say. Just they would say it flows from it. Right? Yeah. So, so it's it's connected to it. It's so elements of personal salvation are a result of the gospel. Mm-hmm. Um, but they are not intrinsic to the gospel. Right. Mm-hmm. And by gospel, we mean good news. Yes. Right. And, and part of their argument comes from the Greek and Roman understanding uh, of what good news would have meant at that yeah. time. 
Right, right. So right. Caesar, you know, good news, Caesar has a son, or there's a new Caesar. Uh, that's the word they borrowed okay. that Jesus and John the Baptist came preaching, you know, uh, the gospel of the kingdom. I want to ask you, God, do you want to say something, Eddie? Well, no, I'm, I'm going to shift the conversation here, so go okay. ahead. Um, what would you say when they say that justification by faith is not part of the gospel? How would you respond to that? Go ahead, Pete. You go first. I'll go second. Um, because I think they do say that, actually. Yeah, they would. Yeah, they, they, yeah. Don't, they don't appreciate Martin Luther's view of justification. I think it's McKnight that actually says Luther was good for his time. Um, I think that's how he puts it. I'm like, no. Wow. <laughs> Not just good for his time. Uh, he's speaking universal See, truth. And, and here's the thing about that. Augustine spoke these things yeah. way before Luther. Luther was an mm-hmm. Augustinian monk. Mm-hmm. And Calvin quotes Augustine more than any other theologian in all of his writings. So this is not Lutheran. This is Augustinian. And Augustine was one of the yeah. earliest and greatest church fathers. Right. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt you. No, no, no. I, th- I think that's, that's helpful. Um, in terms of the justification discussion, you're, I, I would probably go to passages in Romans, specifically mm-hmm. Romans 4, talking about justification yeah. in relation to Abraham and Paul tying that back to our justification. Um, to say there, there's clearly Abraham was justified by faith. Paul makes that very clear, and he, he Abraham makes that, believed God and it was yeah. credited to him righteousness. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Galatians um, as well. Chapter, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. So there, there's a number of passages in the, the Pauline epistles that I think point to we are justified by faith. Um, all throughout Romans, you can't miss. Yeah, it. yeah. But I know, I know McKnight in particular, at least this was the case 10 years ago, um, he, he took a very particular view of justification um, that was aligned to the new perspective on Paul, which was very popular about a decade ago with N.T. Wright. Scott McKnight wrote about it as well, others, who basically pushed aside the idea of this this judicial element of justification. Yeah. Yeah. And they, they navigated this other stream of saying Paul's idea of justification was not God is judge, Jesus stepping into our place and, and we're declared righteous now on the account of Christ's death. But it was something having to do with the, the Jewish tradition that Paul was discussing in terms of justification. Yeah, so just for some clarity for those who might not be as theologically um, in tune but might be learning these things as we're speaking and as they're listening, what we want to say about justification is that it is God declaring the unrighteous to be righteous on the basis of Christ's righteousness given to them as a gift, not on the basis of anything they have done. Mm -hmm. Uh, On the positive, Jesus had what we could call um, active obedience, which is gifted to us uh, by the Father, crediting or imputing that active obedience of Jesus. His baptism, we must do this to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus saying, I did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it, fill it full. And so he accomplishes active obedience, which then is credited to us so that we can stand before the Father as if we lived a righteous life. But Jesus actually accomplished that righteousness for us. We would then, in the substitution sense, say 
that Jesus on the cross took our sins and they were nailed to the cross. Our sins nailed to the cross as Jesus was dying. It was for our sins. And he was um, paying for our sins because our sins had to be paid for. Mm-hmm. Who was pouring out the punishment? It was God the Father, Jesus stepping in place so that we didn't have to take the punishment, but a substitute would, namely Jesus. So there's a negative part of justification in that Jesus takes our sin And there's a positive piece of justification in which we get his active obedience or his righteousness or his fulfillment of the law. So that's just some clarity on justification. Anything more you would add to that, brothers, to to help those who may not be familiar with the categories? If you, first place to go to learn about active obedience, Lyrical Theology Part 1, Thailand. Active obedience. Very, very, very good song. You'll learn a lot about what it means. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Love it. Amen. Um, Let me read something that Scott actually says in his article when he responds. Um, Please note, Eddie has printed out. (laughs) (laughs) I read all the articles. He's got highlights. He's got highlights. He's on top of his game. He says, but making justification central, quote unquote, is a problem. To begin with, it tends to be an explanatory. It, it, it tends to be explanatory. One can make anything central if one uses it to explain everything else. But it's unbiblical because one finds the term "quote unquote" justification three times in the Gospels. Rare That's is the point. John, he means uh, Luke. Yeah, well, he mentions uh, Luke ten, Luke sixteen, Luke eighteen. And he says, "Rare is the point." When one presses this too hard, one discovers that Jesus didn't or rarely did preach the gospel of the centrality of justification. Jesus instead chose kingdom to express his gospel. Mm-hmm. What would you say to that? So for, I, wanna, I wanted to open this up, so I'm glad you quoted that. Okay. Um, I want to talk about two things, so don't let me forget the second one. The second one is biblical theology, starting with Genesis. So okay. we can talk about that in a minute. But in response to what you just said, we're going through Mark right now. Right. And the first thing that Jesus preaches is repent mm-hmm. for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Mm-hmm. And what I've been talking to people about since then is the good news that Jesus was proclaiming at that point was not the same good news that Paul proclaimed in his gospel. Paul even says in the epistles, my gospel that I proclaim. Mm-hmm. The reason it was different was because Jesus had not right. yet had not died on the cross mm-hmm. and risen from the grave and ascended into heaven. So therefore, it, it, it is in progression, mm-hmm. we could say. And that takes us, I think, to biblical theology in that from Genesis 3, where God says uh, the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head, there is a declaration of that this is going to happen. Mm-hmm. And then throughout uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and so on, all the way to the Gospels, we see it happening progressively with the choosing of Abraham and, and with the, the nation of Israel and then the kings emerging and then Judah and the tribe of Judah. And, and we can trace the whole line of that promise being fulfilled and the kingliness being in that given to Adam and then it being failed to, to uh, be established by Adam and then it moving on to the kings of Israel and them failing. And, um, but, but would you guys agree that Jesus was, was in part preaching a different gospel than Paul preached in the epistles? I, I would agree with that. And I think that's the reason for the focus on kingdom. 
he's he's specifically talking and preaching to predominantly Jews about the kingdom, something they would be very familiar with the idea of. Um, they wouldn't, it wouldn't have been a foreign concept to them. So I think it's it's not different in the sense of the the message is different. The, the delivery is different. I, I wouldn't necessarily say that the um, that the core of it is different. Like Jesus still needed to die. Mm-hmm. Um, well, that's why he came. Yeah. Right. So yeah. the core, the core of Jesus, the he will save his people yeah. from their sins. How is he going to save them from their sins? Yeah. Yeah. He's yeah. going to die on the cross. Yeah. I guess what I'm trying to get at is, and maybe I'm not explaining it well enough. Jesus could not have preached Paul's gospel because mm-hmm. in time and space he hadn't accomplished the necessary means for justification right. to happen yet. In atonement yet. So at that break, he didn't make atonement mm-hmm. yet, which the day of atonement yes. instituted in the sacrificial system was mm-hmm. always pointing to the cross. Mm-hmm. What we would say then, I think about this pro- proclamation of the gospel in Mark chapter 1, is that he was preaching the gospel, which in that time and space, that's the point to which it reached in time and space. Right, right. Three years later after resurrection, it's a different gospel. And the, the road to Emmaus is, I think, illustrative of that because he opens up the whole Old Testament and shows how it was all moving towards the cross. And then their eyes are open, right? The, the two disciples, and they're like, was not our hearts burning within us as he opened up the scriptures to us? So that's maybe more clarity on what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Would you say, well, they may... That in saying, making justification such a big issue, quote-unquote, for lack of a better term. Um, and I think uh, Scott and Matthew would say, and I think they've said, that it makes the, the gospel about us and not for us. He said the gospel is about Jesus. I think he said that in an article. The gospel is about Jesus, not about us. It's for us, but it's not about us. So, and it sounds like he's saying that when you, when you emphasize justification, it's more about us than Jesus, which I don't think that's the case, but um, I think that would be their argument in part two. Yeah, it, I, I would agree with that, that that would be their argument, and I would also disagree. I don't, yeah. I don't think that, I don't think it makes it about us. Right, I don't think so either. The, the message of justification is God's declaration of righteousness, not, not in any way are our achievement of that righteousness. And yes, we're the recipients of that, Mm. but God is the one who is ultimately uh, receiving the glory and the honor and the praise for all of that. So he's still, he's still the center point. I agree with them when they say God is, God is, I I mean, I agree with when John Piper says God is the gospel. I Mm -hmm. I agree when he says that Um, because in justification, we get God. And so we are the recipients, we're the beneficiaries of that. But that doesn't make it about us. Right, right. It's right. still about Christ and his work on the cross for us on our behalf. As you were talking, Chris, I was thinking about Luke 18. Um, I think that was, Eddie, one of the passages you mentioned mm-hmm. that the word justified is used. That's, that's when Jesus tells the parable of the Pharisee who gets up and prays and then the tax collector who prays. And the tax collector's prayer is, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Um, And Jesus says he goes away justified. And not the other one. And not the other one. 
So the tax collector is justified for his prayer, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I think it begs the question where, one, he recognizes his sin. And it begs the question of how is that mercy provided? Mm-hmm. How is that mercy given? Right, yeah. yeah. On what basis? On what basis is that? Is what basis is he praying for that? And he's praying for it, looking forward to, in this instance, looking forward to the substitution that would take place. Mm-hmm. And for us, we look back to the substitution that takes place. And, and so I think even there, um, you see elements of Jesus's message, including the very nature and, and core of the gospel. Like justification is there. Um, yeah. I think it was Piper preached a message yes. in T4G in 2010. Say, yeah, I was going to say, I, I remember that was, that message. Yeah. That basically said the message of Jesus and the message mm-hmm. of Paul are the same. Mm-hmm. Um, I had yeah, to go back to listen to it. Yeah, me too. It's been so long, but I do remember that message. Yeah. I listened to that. Yeah. Um, yeah. He said Jesus did preach justification. Yeah. yeah. When you when you, when you you listen to him and hear him talk. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting, too, because I think it's Bates um, when he discusses faith. Which, which I think really kind of gets to the, the core of where some of this problem is. Because you, you could be listening to this and thinking, this is, this is just hairs. splitting hairs. Yeah. This mm. is what people in seminary do, talk about weird random things that don't have significant impact. But Bates in particular, when he discusses the idea of faith, he says, because the gospel is Jesus' is king, faith is then allegiance to him. Right. Allegiance to him as king, and I, I had it written down. So instead of proclaiming trust, we we proclaim bow the knee, you know, mm-hmm. pledge allegiance. Yeah. Him. So so typical reformed understanding of faith is there's a there's a trust in God, typically mental assent to belief in Jesus Christ and what He did on the cross for our sins, and then evidence of that mm-hmm. through our works. We're so saved we, by faith alone, but exactly. not faith that remains alone. Exactly. Um, so Bates, and I, I wrote it down just to make sure I captured it correctly. Um, true faith is itself embodied allegiance and thus includes embodied good works from the ground up. Say that one time. Sure. Now that I clicked off my phone. Ah, sorry, bro. <laughs> um, faith, true faith is itself embodied allegiance and thus includes embodied good works from the ground up. Because he would say that right standing with God is not is not the gospel. It's a benefit of the gospel. And that faith is a an allegiance, a loyalty to the king, um, and is our response to that. And and I walked away from that thinking if good works is the embodiment of faith from the ground up. How is that any different than Catholic theology of faith? Because they, they argue faith faith with works. Like faith has to have mm-hmm. works in order for you to be granted salvation. Mm-hmm. So with Bates' discussion of faith is embodied allegiance from the ground up of, of good faith is good works from the ground up. That's essentially it. You, you provide your allegiance to the king and then your good works from the ground up is embodying your faith. It sounds very much like works and faith. Yeah. Have, have to they have to be tied together right, in a right. salvific sense, not in an evidencing of your faith sense. Um, 
which was very interesting to me. And I think that's where it gets to this isn't just splitting hairs in some ways. It's essential. This is yeah, essential. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that's not to say Bates or McKnight are not believers. We don't know that. We're not the judges of men's hearts. But when you start to go down this path of saying justification and substitutionary atonement are not central, what that does to other doctrines and thoughts to say, so my faith now is contingent on my works, mm-hmm. is, which is essentially what Bates is saying. And that's no different than mm-hmm. Catholic theology, right. which teaches you have to work your way to Christ. Yeah. So we would want to make a clarification here and say we agree with James in his epistle mm-hmm. where he says faith without works is dead. Yeah. And then he says, you say you have faith. I will show you my faith by my works. Mm -hmm. And so James is not at odds with Paul when he says, uh, you know, that that faith cannot save you, uh, faith without works. So what James is saying is if you have a claim of faith, but you have no evidence to back up your claim, can that kind of faith save you? And the answer is no. Mm -hmm. Jesus said you will know them by their fruit. Mm -hmm. But what James is not saying is that my works will somehow justify me and my trust and my faith, my, my trust and my works are mingled together and it's, it's a combination of faith based on works. He's not saying, what he's saying is it has to be a trust in Christ alone. So we believe in the five solas. We're a, we're a reformed church in that sense. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for God's glory alone. How do we know this? Because scripture alone teaches this. So we would say yes and amen. And I think James would also yes and amen yes. those five solas as well. And he would say, no, no, no. I'm not saying that it's a works and faith combined. I'm saying that when you have real faith and you say, it, yes, I have faith. I trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of my sins. That will by necessity lead to a changed life which produces righteousness and good works. Why? Because you now are alive spiritually and you have the Holy Spirit of God living inside of you producing this fruit, mm-hmm. the fruit of the Holy Spirit. So it's not you doing it, even right. essentially. Yeah. It's the Holy Spirit doing these good things through you, though it's you doing them. Yeah. Anyone want to add to that? Yeah, I think him and Paul were using justification in two different uh, ways. Oh, yeah. Paul was talking about being justified um, outside of works. you know, um, and, and, and James was talking about works... Um, being shown to justify your faith. That makes sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So I think they were just using uh, this uh, the same word with different meanings, different implications. And, uh, and when you read that, you see that. When you, when, you, when you really study, you can really see that, the difference they were making. So they weren't in, at odds with each other at all. And nor was Jesus at odds with Paul. No, no, not, not at all. No. All right, let's talk about uh, biblical theology because um, not everybody knows what that is. But we are a church that is um, ascribing to biblical theology. Um, we, in fact, have a book in our bookstore called the Biblical Theology Study Bible. Uh, the title of ours says the NIV Study Bible, but it's the same notes, it's the same articles, just republished as uh, the Biblical Theology Study they Bible. They need more of your money. Yeah, man. So, <laughs> and by Tom Carson. <laughs> so would you agree... Um, that Adam was given a kingly role. Yeah. Okay. In what sense? So I think you see that in if we if we think of the idea of one aspect of kingship is authority. Okay. Um, 
Adam is given authority through the Lord's dominion, the dominion mandate, that Adam is to care for the garden. He is to care for the animals. He is to do all those things. He's had dominion over all of creation. And just as Adam was, so are we in that same sense. And so I think Adam was given this kingly type role to of rule. having authority to rule. Yeah. And then what, how, how did Adam lose it? Through the fall. I mean, he, he failed to be king. He failed to properly rule um, creation and, and have authority and dominion over creation um, through the fall. Okay, and then very quickly, you don't have to run through all of it, yeah. but how would you trace that line of king up until Jesus? Yeah, so, unless, Eddie, you want to take no, it? No, you go ahead, bro. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think you see it from chapter 4, um, and I won't go into all of it, but I think when you see Eve say, I have been given a man who's from the Lord, mm-hmm. um, you, see his, you see her right there saying, this one is... The, the replacement for Adam. He's mm-hmm. the one who is fulfilling Genesis He's going to be the one to crush the head yeah. of the serpent. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, so obviously that doesn't happen. And then you you continue to progress into Abraham and God's choosing of of Abraham to be his people. Um, what about Noah? You've got, you've got some elements of Noah, I think you see in there. I think the, the Noahic story points to Jesus in, in a number of different ways. But you would say not in the kingly sense? Nothing I can think of directly that would make me think that. Although he is responsible, him and his sons are responsible. For yeah, I was just going to say, he is, he's given that he's, dominion mandate yeah. again. So yeah, there's, there's an element of Noah. Then it gets a little more focused in on Abraham and then his, his children. And you even get to um, when Jacob has his sons... Like okay, somebody's coming from here, and the only really righteous one is Joseph, but it's not actually him. It's Judah, who is not righteous. Not righteous at all. <laughs> yeah, not righteous at all. Genesis Please thirty-eight. His yeah, by mistake. Um, yeah, because he yeah. thought she was a prostitute. Yeah, doesn't make it any better. <laughs> um, so the line's coming from Judah, and then you see all of the judges who they're yeah. searching for a king, and they can't. They, they don't have one, and you just see the Jewish society um, continuing to go down further and further um, until David finally comes along. And he is, he is, of every one of the Old Testament types, I would say, the closest resemblance to what Jesus is. Like, it's even the covenant with, with David yeah. is to say, like, you are a king, your kingship will last forever. Mm-hmm. Um, Jesus is called Son of David. Jesus is called right, Son of yeah. David, yeah. So I think there's there's a close connection there. And Gilbert does a good job in one of his articles to, to trace this very thing. Yes. Um, and I, I think he, he even makes the point, which I think is right is David's suffering impacts the whole nation. Mm-hmm. David's, David's life was one of suffering, even as the King, like there's a very little time in David's life where he was actually at peace. Um, he was constantly suffering throughout his entire life. If you life just read the Psalms, you can yeah, see that. Exactly. And so you see all that traced through, and then you get to Isaiah and the suffering servant passages in Isaiah. Even Psalms point to it, um, point to Christ. And then ultimately you get to Jesus, who is the culmination of all those things, who all of those those people pointed to Jesus in some way, shape, or form. And that's not even touching on it. I mean, that's just talking about individuals. The, The whole Passover system, the whole sacrificial system that... 
God established in the law all points to Christ. Right. Well, wouldn't that be so? We we also like many of us at least like John Frame, yeah, uh, the tribrospectival prophet, priest, and king model of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And so, would that be getting into the priestly aspects, the whole yep. Passover lamb and the sacrificial system and the Levites and Aaron's sons and yep. Yeah. yeah, and it's interesting, and Gilbert says this in, in one of his responses, and I think was super helpful and even eye-opening in some respects. A lot of times we do think of Jesus' death as being he is priest. Um, he's, he's the sacrifice. He's giving up of himself, and his sacrifice is on our behalf. So well, because Hebrews would say that. Hebrews right? does Hebrews say that, and I think that's true. So in a priestly sense, Jesus, um, Jesus dies on the cross as the great high priest. But when you read through the narrative account, everything points to him as king. Um, the the crown of thorns he wears, mm-hmm. the, the robe oh, he's given, yeah, right. the, even the sign the king of the Jews, the scepter, yeah. all those yeah. things point to a kingly nature. And so even in his death, he's dying as king, mm-hmm. um, which I thought Gilbert um, laid out really well. Yeah. Yeah. And, and as prophet, you can see all those aspects as Absolutely. well, because the prophets called yeah. the people back to God. They spoke directly Absolutely. for God. They yeah. condemned or, or, or relieved, I would say, yeah. you know. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think that perspective that John frame frame, if you will, is really helpful and true. And you see it. Um, I would want to recommend the, NIV study Bible slash biblical theology study Bible and its articles and notes for anyone who wants to get more into this. But let's talk quickly about the sacrificial system, Pete, because it's clear to me that if Jesus is king was the central of the gospel, then why did the sacrificial system get instituted from Genesis 3? That animal that, that he clothed them with. You know, you eat from the tree, you shall surely die. Um, question, yeah. Yeah, and so immediately we see, though the law and the sacrificial system is not instituted yet, we see sacrifice. And then the very next chapter, we see Cain and Abel sacrificing. Yeah. And then Noah is sacrificing and offering sacrifices. So clearly God had a conversation with them about what this means. They knew more than we have in the narrative. But that sacrificial institution of God in Genesis 3, starting with that animal that clothed them, I think that was a picture of one dying in the place of another mm-hmm. as a substitute. Mm-hmm. And you see that if you just look for it, it's there all throughout yeah. the Old Testament. The Old Testament exactly. And so I think that's another way we could say like substitutionary atonement is the center of the gospel, which justifies us. Anyone want to expound on that? Eddie, you want to expound on that a little bit? No, I mean, that, that's precisely true. I mean, if, I, if you read the Old Testament and the New Testament and put the two together, you, it's a perfect picture. You see that. Like you said from the beginning, from Genesis um, to Malachi, as far as the Old Testament is concerned, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. And then fulfillment of that, uh, as obviously in the New Testament. So um, it's not an either or. It's both and. Uh, so you can't. I don't think you just can't have one without the other. Both and what? Both have, um, in the, regards the, to what? The atonement the, and the kingship, and how. And like I said in the book of Zechariah, where you see the two coming together. Um, I think it's chapter. I forget what chapter four. I believe it in Zechariah, where you see the the, 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 the king and the priest coming together, and 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 Jesus died as king, mm-hmm. um, as, as 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 a priest for the people to represent the people, the king, priest, and prophet. That whole thing. Um, so there's a, a mingling, if you will, um, 
of those roles. Mm-hmm. And it, it's, it's clear throughout the Old Testament and the fulfillment in the New. Yeah, I, w- I would absolutely agree. I think you've got you've got all the elements of substitution in the Old Testament. And, and like I said earlier, I, I think it's helpful to consider that the narrative of Jesus' life, all the things that preceded, all the biblical theology, at some points we've we haven't emphasized enough, mm. um, but it, it is it's it's an it's a both and in the sense of substitution is central, but you you can't remove substitution from Jesus. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In the same way, you can't remove Jesus from substitution. Like right, right. You you have to have both elements of it in order for in order for all of it to be cohesive and make sense mm-hmm. ultimately, and at the the real important element in order for us to have salvation <laughs> in order yeah. for us to have right. a relationship with God and be in union with him and all the other aspects of the gospel that are, that are in there in order to be justified, even if others don't like the term or the idea. Um, yeah. As if it was great, some people refer to it as a fifth gospel. It's just atonement. It's, it's full of atonement. And that's, um, that's a, that's a verse God laid on him the iniquity the iniquity of us all I mean that whole I mean a lot of Jews get saved because of Isaiah 53 mm-hmm. because they see the substitute they see the forgiveness of sins yep. in in the Messiah in in, in, the, in those verses so um, I think Isaiah 53 is very powerful uh, to 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 uh, confirm the whole um, substitutionary atonement thing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and there's no way around there's no way around it yeah, yeah. And even Paul's words to the Corinthians when he says he made him to be sin who knew yes. no sin that we would become the righteousness of God. God. Yes. Yes. There's, there's, I don't see another way to look at it yeah. um, without completely distorting what is the true intention of the text but also what has been studied and what has been considered through all of church history. Um, right. Dating yeah. back to Augustine um, all the way through to Luther and Calvin and the Reformation. Yeah, I mean to say that all the the the, the leaders of the T4G and the Gospel Coalition have gotten the gospel wrong is what Ashley said that they've gotten the gospel wrong, but they're still good Christian men. I mean, if you if you get yeah. the gospel, wrong, I mean, I can understand what they're saying, with their, but that's a huge accusation. Yeah, and and Paul kind of went off. In Galatians, when the gospel was being tweaked a little bit. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. If anyone yeah, comes exactly, preaching yeah. out of the gospel, let him be accursed. Yeah. Uh, and and he's not, he doesn't have a friendly tone there to the Galatians. No, he doesn't. Paul excused no. a lot of stuff, even baptism of the dead to yeah, the Corinthians, yeah. which we've talked about in the former podcast. But he goes off when you get off the gospel a little bit. Even if yeah. you receive circumcision, you are under the law. Mm-hmm. You are, you know. So... And, and I'm thinking of Jesus at the Last Supper, uh, which was a celebration of the Passover, uh, the Jewish Seder. And he says, this is the new covenant in my blood. Mm-hmm. As often as you eat this bread, drink this cup, uh, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So proclaiming the Lord's death, what did he die for? Mm-hmm. He died for the salvation of his people. You know, I, I, I can never forget... The, the, the words are burned into my mind when Joseph was told by Gabriel you will call his name Jesus why for he will save his people from their sins right. 
And and sure, he's going to be born a king. I mean, that's kind of what Christmas, we can celebrate that, the, the baby king. So we're not divorcing kingship from Jesus. What we're saying is the king came to accomplish something. Yep. Yeah, that's the, yeah, and that's the point that... Um, uh, Greg keeps trying to point out he came to accomplish something. Yeah, he like he said he said he for he will save his people from his sins. He didn't say you shall name him Jesus, but he will be king of Israel. That's not what he or said. King of the world. For king of the world. He didn't say that. And that's what the Jews were looking for. They were looking yeah, that would, for exactly. They were looking a for a king, king who would overthrow their oppressors and yeah. and be able to establish the kingdom. Yeah. And Jesus continually points back to. That's not why I came. That's not why I came. You yeah. see it and in they were greatly disappointed. It, I in mean, that. In, yeah. that's one of the reasons why you had the messianic secret throughout the Gospels, where Jesus is like, "Don't tell people right. about." Mm-hmm. Isn't that strange? Yeah, yeah. because yeah. I, yeah. I don't want them to know about me because I'm not here to set up a kingdom. Right. I'm here yeah. to die. Yeah. And yeah. he wasn't he wasn't ready for the confrontations that would be around, and and you even see him rebuke people. Who come to him and he's like, "You're not coming to me because of me. You just yeah. the stuff I'm bringing. Right, yeah, you think yeah, I'm bringing yeah. you. So eat my flesh and drink my yeah. blood." And everyone's like, no, we, don't, <laughs> "We don't want that." Yeah. In the context of and the disciples are even like, right. "Whoa, whoa, whoa!" Yeah. Like they're all leaving now. <laughs> Stop saying that. And isn't it interesting? He tells you know the demons too. We know who you are. Right. right? Yeah. 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 You know? Yeah. And then he's like, silence, quiet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, and yeah, the Messianic secret, that is so fascinating. Will you open that up a little bit for those who aren't familiar with what you're talking about? Sure. So within the Gospels, um, you, see, you see Jesus interacting with demons, within people he heals, even within um, disciples and others. You see when he talks to his mother in John 2 and says, my hour's not yet come. Mm-hmm. Like, don't make me, like, don't force me to do this. My hour's not come. Um, where Jesus doesn't, he doesn't want his popularity to spread. He doesn't want what he's done to be spread out to all the people. And I think there's there's a few reasons for that. First, he he's not. He had three years of ministry, and after the first couple of months, he doesn't want to invite a lot of the scrutiny and a lot of the challenge from religious leaders. He doesn't want Rome to catch those wind of things. Yeah, those in authority. He, he's not, it's not his time yet to go to the cross. Mm-hmm. It's not yet his time. Um, his hour hasn't come, as John puts it. So I think he wants to avoid the conflict that he knows will ultimately rise. Mm-hmm. And so in his sovereignty, in his providence, he's looking to bring his ministry over a three-year period, and that tension will escalate. You even see it in Mark 2. It starts to escalate right away. Um, and then I think it's Mark 3. They start to say, we need to kill this yeah, guy. Yeah, it is. So pretty quickly, after They're people start to learn about it. in the Herodians yeah. to seek how to destroy it. Yeah. And the, the other aspect, so I think that's reason one why he does that, where he tells demons, silence, don't talk about me. He tells the leper in Mark 1, don't say anything, and then the leper disobeys. Um, and tells everyone. He has to go out to desolate yeah, places exactly. because the crowds are you know, exactly. crowding him. And yeah. so I think the second reason is that the very thing we've been talking about, he's, he's not desiring to set up a following of crowds and crowds of people. Right. Um, he focuses his attention on 12. He focuses his attention on very specific people because he knows his path is to the cross. He lives in the shadow of the cross throughout mm-hmm. his entire life. And it, it begets, gets bigger and bigger as it gets to that and it becomes more apparent where he's going. And so he, do, he doesn't want just crowds of people. He's not there for entertainment. He's not there for mm-hmm. fame. He's there to die. 
Mm. And anything other than that, he just goes against his whole ministry, his whole yeah. life. If his, if his ministry in life was, I am king, I have come, he, he would have wanted crowds, he would have wanted people, and he would have had the power to say to Rome, you're done. Yeah, right, yeah. But yeah. he doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. And yeah. I think that's yeah. specifically because he recognizes his need to substitute himself for us. And he even told uh, um, Pilate, he said, um, my, kingdom. my kingdom is not of this world. Exactly. He said if it wasn't, they would fight. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He mm-hmm. said, but uh, my kingdom is not of this world. Exactly. You know? Yeah. 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 Yep. And, and so again, we're not saying Jesus is not king. We have He is affirmed. absolutely king. He's he's absolutely king. king. Yes. King Jesus. Yeah. Yes, he is. <laughs> we're with Kanye. Just get that out the way. Yeah. <laughs> we, Jesus is king. We're with Kanye. All we're saying is, it's not the central right. message absolutely. of the good news. The central message is that the king has come to accomplish salvation for us by mm-hmm. living perfectly mm-hmm. according to the law, according to the standard of God's perfection, and going to the cross as a substitute for all those who would trust in him, mm-hmm. save his people from their sins. Right. And all of the Old Testament points to that central piece of history, the cross, that yes. six hours there. Yep. And the resurrection... Uh, proves that the sacrifice was pleasing to God and he accomplished what he came to accomplish. I, as we were talking earlier, I pulled up uh, Revelation chapter 5 and the people, as they praise him, listen to the praise he gets. You know, So remember we were talking about justification and substitutionary atonement makes the gospel about us. Verse 6. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out to all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song. So here's the worship. Mm -hmm. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seal because you were slain and with your blood purchased for God persons from every tribe, language, people, nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on earth. Then I looked and heard a voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders with a loud voice were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise and so on. So you you see there, he's being praised for being slain. What was he slain for? He was slain for the forgiveness of all those who would ever trust in him. And this causes this uproar of praise and worship in heaven. And so, yeah, he's the king, but he's the king who was slain. Right, right. So, again, we we can point to many passages like that, right? It's not a a hidden thing. It's not just in Romans 4 where we can point to this or Galatians 3 where we can point to this. This is central to the whole Bible, starting in Genesis, going to Revelation. All right, so, you know, I, I think we, we need to wrap this up here pretty soon. Let's talk about this very quickly. Um, I think we've all read the, the little black nine marks book, 
What is the Gospel by Greg Gilbert, and we appreciate that. I have the little track sitting over, <clears throat> sitting over there that we gave out in one of our last outreach uh, events. Um, how would you coach our people? And we can go around the room this way. I'll go last. How would you coach our people to share the good news uh, if they had maybe two minutes with someone? And I know that's hard, but, but let's say they only had two minutes. How would you coach them to share the gospel? Yeah, it's... So one of the one of the things I would say is share the gospel by being honest with what the gospel is, that Jesus Jesus Christ died for the forgiveness of sins, that he substituted himself. But don't don't try to cram everything into two minutes. Right. You have two minutes. Um, the expression I've I've read before in a couple of apologetics books is to put a stone in their shoe. Um, mm. Give them something to think about. Yeah, yeah. Um, ask questions and give them something to to challenge their worldview, challenge where they are. So if if within those two minutes you have an opportunity to to leave them with something that just gets them to think about where they stand in relationship to Christ, I think those those two minutes could work wonders and hopefully spawn more conversations. That's good. Yeah, yeah I would say um, use simple language. Yeah. Don't use um, you know big theological terms to try to uh, try to give the gospel. So I would, I would say use simple language um, uh, that's easy to understand and to give them something to think about too. I think that's important. To leave them with something, leave them with something to ponder, uh, to chew on, to maybe bother them. Yeah, give them something that that, that would even bother them. You know, um, whether it's their own sinfulness. And God's holiness and how that's a problem. Um, that God hates sin. Uh, and if you need to, mention the wrath of God and the judgment and how that's been averted through the cross, through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, and I would agree, don't try to cram too much. You just can't, you know. So so try to give the nuggets, quote unquote, the things that will stick, if you will, um, and pray. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, give them a... Before, during, and after. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You got two minutes, say what you need to say, and pray. Yeah. <laughs> and ask God to, to give understanding of what you said, you know, and use it. That's good. Yeah. As we've gone out and talked to people on the streets here in Wilkinsburg, uh, we have had maybe two minutes. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've heard you do that very thing, Eddie. You know, you talk to guys and say God is holy and, and sin is a problem and we are sinners and we can't stand before God. And, and yeah. Jesus paid for our sins on the cross. He averted the wrath of God. Um, I think that what we can remember ourselves is that we don't save people. Mm-hmm. God yeah. saves people. Yeah. Paul says to the Corinthians, I planted, mm-hmm. Apollos watered, but God gave the increase or God made it grow. And that's really helpful for us is yes. to, to be willing to share, even if you feel like, man, I'm not a theologian, I'm not an apologist, I'm not an evangelist, I'm not a pastor, I'm not a Bible study teacher, I'm just a Christian, and just, quote unquote, a Christian. You may be watering a seed yes. that has been planted and has been being watered for years and years and years. Mm-hmm. And perhaps you're the first one to put yes. the seed in the ground. Mm-hmm. And, and it's really helpful also. I, I would highly recommend Reformed Soteriology. I would commend it. Because we our job as uh, 
Christians is to seek the elect, mm-hmm. right? I do all things for the sake of the elect. Um, and so the idea is we, we don't uh, save people and we don't lose people either. Amen. You know, like God, I've, I've heard some evangelists, you know, trying to guilt people into sharing the gospel and they, and they say, I don't want to show up on judgment day mm-hmm. and hear God say so-and-so and so-and-so is in hell because you yeah. failed to share the gospel or, you know, you can take it a step further. You failed to be witty enough in your gospel presentation yeah. or compelling enough or, you know, and you could go on and on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's not up to us to save people. Amen. God will save his people from their sins. He will. However, we get to join him and partner him, with him in that salvation effort. And I think that's a great privilege to, to be able to share. Um, I think that in our culture, uh, though I would not say don't do cold contact evangelism, we do that, and, and I have done that, uh, and we will still do that as a church. We will go out and, and meet people for the first time and share the good news. However, I've seen it effective and fruitful in relationship building and in walking through long passages of scripture with people over long weeks and months. Yeah. And I've seen it bear fruit. Any experiences that you brothers have, have personally had in seeing people move from spiritual death to spiritual life, was it one conversation? Was it many conversations? Was it years of relationship? Years, some of years of relationship and more, more than one conversation, definitely. Yeah, yeah. But eventually see fruit, you know, and, and you rejoice when you do. But, but yeah, and everybody's different. Everybody's different. Um, you may have to deal with one person one way and another person another way. So you have to play that by ear, if you will. Um, but, yeah, it's definitely over a period of time. I don't know. Well, me personally, I've never witnessed a person, somebody one time, like I saved right there or anything like that. I've never, that's never happened to me. So, yeah, it's, 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 um, relationships and multiple conversations and answering questions. Yeah. Yeah. My experience has been the same. It's been multiple conversations over months, years mm-hmm. of just mm-hmm. engaging with, engaging with the gospel with people. Um, and it's, can't think of any instance where it's been just one time presenting the gospel. I mean, I've read of stories, I've heard of things where, like you said, people have people have had a, a grandmother or a family member mm-hmm. who's been talking to them about the gospel, and then you happen to be the one that engages with them, and they say, you know what, this has been something that's been on my heart for a while because of my grandmother or my mother or my father, and they end up coming to Christ. I've read those things, but I've never experienced it personally. Yeah. There are those who plant, there are those who water, and those who are reap. They reap the harvest that others have planted and watered. Uh, and it's all evangelism, and it's all, in a sense, disciple-seeking. You know? The first part of discipling someone is seeking a disciple. Um, yeah, I, when I was, and this is sad to say, but when I was less theologically clear, um, I... I would call for people to pray a prayer right then and there. And I used to do it all the time. And I remember being with a guy who I went to school with. This was in 2000, 2001. And this guy knew I was Christian, and I had brought him to an evangelistic meeting and event, and he knew why he was coming. And, and we had gathered, myself and, and my wife and some others, we had gathered like four or five people uh-huh. to gather together and pray the prayer. Like we were going to harvest. You know, that was what we were doing. <laughs> And my friend, 
who I was evangelizing. This was the purpose why I brought him to this event. You know, I had been talking to him. I was like, come on, man, we're going to go and we're going to pray the prayer. And he's like, I don't know, man. I was like, come on, man. Like right now, this is your time. You can do it. And I was pressing him, you know, pushing him. Mm-hmm. And finally, after me pressing him and pushing him, he's like, man, you got to mean it when you pray. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. and he's, he's telling you. Right. And I was like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess you're right. So, he the but it was a wake up call for me yeah, yeah, to yeah, say, yeah. okay, you, you're very zealous for people to come to know Christ. And it's important, right? Like it's death and life. It's heaven and hell. It's eternity. It is important. But it said to me, you can't force people into the kingdom. Amen. Amen. Like you can't save people. And just because you want them to be saved doesn't mean you can make it happen. Amen. Amen. And and he kinda had to, to rebuke me. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta mean it, man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> really animated. Yeah. But we then went and prayed with the other people. Uh-huh. And, uh-huh. and and I so in that sense, I pr- I've prayed with many people yeah. on the spot. However, were they truly converted? I don't know. Yeah, yeah, I, think I don't know. That. I mean, I've been in churches where they, they have the altar calls and they, you know, are convinced there's somebody there that, you know, God is speaking to and all that kind of stuff, you know, and and almost uh, guilt people into coming down the aisle, you know. and um, They're the eighth verse of the closing song. Yeah, yeah, sing it one more time. If you yeah, love um, Jesus, just come yeah, down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I've seen all of that, yeah. yeah. And, and, and I was I was part of a, what we call the follow up ministry where um, when people do come and, and give their life to the Lord and you, know, you become their prayer partner and disciple if you will and um, and a lot of those people were they never got saved yeah. you know you know as soon as they left church it was <laughs> yeah. you know I've seen it too many times you know yeah. You know. yeah if I could recommend two books I think that are helpful with this topic one is um, called Tactics by Greg Kugel uh, can you spell that. It is tactics or Kugel? It's K O U K L. And then the other is Every Believer Confident by Mark Farnham. Um, both of these would probably fit into the realm of like apologetics, but they're not your Ravi Zacharias, like real deep yeah. stuff. Mm-hmm. It's really about how to have a conversation about mm-hmm. Christ how to have a conversation when you're in a coffee shop, how to just engage people with the gospel more than like teaching you techniques of um, apologetic theory more mm-hmm. than anything. So I think yeah. those are two very helpful resources that I've come across. It's good. Um, I have not read this book, but I've heard Harvey Turner speak and my friend Scott Prentice, who's also in Acts 29, they use it at their church. It's called Friend of Sinners by Harvey Turner. He's Acts 29 pastor. And uh, he's seen many, many people come to Christ. He's in California right now. Um, and, and the basic premise is we, we befriend people. Mm-hmm. You know, we, yeah. we, we genuinely reach out. Jesus was accused of being the friend mm-hmm. of sinners, mm-hmm. identifying with them mm-hmm. and eating with them and being around them and associate, associating with them. And we should not be afraid to do the same. Right. Uh, it doesn't mean we have to go to the club with them regardless of what kind of club that is. But we can be friends with neighbors and coworkers and, uh, and, and befriend people for the purposes of their souls uh, and, and sharing the good news. Mm-hmm. And, and again, it's not up to us to save people, which is really helpful. What are you laughing at, Pete? I'm just thinking about when I told you I was going to spell tactics. Just 
still in my head. <laughs> <laughs> He's over here laughing to himself. Yeah, because, because he doesn't know how to spell taffies. That's why. <laughs> <laughs> I was just, just making myself laugh. Just making he, myself laugh. He could be his own comedian. I yeah, I see. Be, I see. Yeah. All by himself. I love it. Well, thank you, brothers. I appreciate you spending the time. I appreciate uh, the gospel clarity here. And we'll probably revisit this again at another angle. Yeah. But I think this is yeah. good for tonight. So yeah. thank you for your thoughts. Thank you for your study for many, many years to be able to have this conversation. And uh, let's continue to shepherd and disciple our people. And prayerfully, this podcast has been one of those helpful ministry efforts. Amen. Culture Conversations, out.